Uh, let's get our Bibles out open to Philippians chapter 3, page 1350 in the Pew Bible in front of you. If you need a copy of God's Word, you can just grab it. Open to 1350, you'll find Philippians 3. So for the last 10 weeks, we've been studying the book of Philippians. We have now come to the halfway point, and uh, we have seen where God has a lot to say to us through the Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter to this little church in the town of Philippi. He is on house arrest in Rome. Philippi is a town that is designed by the Roman Empire to mimic Rome. It's like a little Rome. It's a very pagan and dark place. Paul never intended to go there, but detoured by the Holy Spirit, he ends up there. God saved a bunch of ragtag outsiders that never would have connected their lives in any way apart from the gospel. They become followers of Christ. They join together, begin meeting in a lady named Lydia's house, and now we have a church, and this church begins to grow, and, the, and God has big things in store for this church. He's already done exceedingly abundantly above anything anybody could ask or think, and yet it's just the beginning. And Paul is uh, encouraging them, and he's encouraging us as he does so. And so if you get your listening guide out, we're going to begin by remembering where we left off last week. And that is the fact that Jesus came to bring outsiders in. You see, Paul is writing to a group of people that if ever there was a group of people that wouldn't need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus came to, to bring outsiders in, it would be the church of Philippi. And yet, it just shows us the importance of continually reminding ourselves how easy it is for us to... Uh, become part of something, and then lose track of who we used to be and what we're supposed to be about and just get consumed with each other. I mean, you've got this group of people uh, that Paul wants to sort of hold out before them. If you back up and look at the end of chapter 2, go back to verse 19, Paul starts talking about Timothy and how of all the people in the world that Paul would replicate his faith in, that God would use to be uh, the most like the Apostle Paul, it's this young man, Timothy. And we looked at the life of Timothy, and we saw that Timothy was not the person that you would have naturally chosen to be Paul's apprentice, to be Paul's protege. Timothy had the wrong background. He came from a, a, a biracial family. We talked about how in Acts chapter 16, the Bible says that this young man named Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who became a believer in Jesus. But his father was a Greek who never did become a believer as far as we know. And so he sort of started out, uh, you know, at a deficiency, if you will, or a disadvantage, if you will. And yet God used this young man who was discipled by his mother and his grandmother, who didn't have the example as a father, but he gravitated towards the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul took him under his wing, and God used him to become uh, the great Timothy who went on to become a very influential pastor in the first century. Then in verse 25 of chapter 2, we talked about Epaphroditus. And the thing about Epaphroditus is that a lot of people don't know who he is, but we ought to know who he is because he's a very fascinating person. And just because he only shows up in the Bible in two places doesn't mean that he's not important and that we don't have a lot to learn from him. We talked about how Epaphroditus, if ever there was a person who wouldn't make it into the pages of Scripture, at least in a positive way, it would be Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was the guy who, when he first uh, heard the gospel, responded to the gospel, and showed up at the church of Philippi. You can imagine how that went, because if your name is Epaphroditus, Hi, I'm Tony. What's your name? Epaphroditus. 
You're named after the pagan god of vanity. So it would be as if you came to church this morning and you noticed someone you hadn't seen before and you walked up to them and you said, you introduced yourself and they said, uh, hi, it's good to meet you. My name is Buddha. It would be a little strange. Or if their name was, you know, Allah Johnson, it would be a little strange. That's the way it would seem to meet somebody whose name is Epaphroditus. So automatically, he was, you know, probably overlooked and discounted and so on and so forth. Let's read what the Apostle Paul says about Epaphroditus. I feel like it's so important we should read it again. Verse 25 and following, Paul says, Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he became close to death, not regarding his own life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. Now, let's think about this for a minute. This, this young man who was named after a pagan god who gets radically saved in this church in Philippi, then when the church at Philippi decides they're going to send a missionary to Rome to stay with Paul and to meet his needs, they take up an offering, they need to choose who among them is ready, who has been discipled to the point where they're ready to be dispatched for the kingdom of God, to go to minister to the Apostle Paul. I mean, you can't just send anybody to the Apostle Paul. So of all the people in the church at Philippi, the person chosen is Epaphroditus. And based on what we see here, what Paul says... We talked about how the fact that he's serving God and yet he's sick almost unto death. And the warning here that we need to be reminded of again is that in the modern church of today, I am 100% convinced Epaphroditus would be seen as a failure. 100%. Because this is the way the church of today thinks. Epaphroditus is sent to go minister to Paul, and when he gets there, he's sick and almost dies. Well, he must be out of God's will. And then Paul is so distressed because they're so worried about him and his sickness that Paul sends him back early, so it must be a failure because we sent him there to stay with Paul until the very end, till either Paul dies or Paul's released from jail, but he had to come back early, so the whole thing has just been a big failure. And yet the Bible, a person seeing with the eyes of God, would see things exactly the opposite. You see, the Bible teaches us that failure is part of normal part of life. And that God, the sovereign God of the universe, who could have prevented Epaphroditus from getting sick but didn't. Why did he do that? Because he's God. Because he doesn't have to do anything. And he allows Epaphroditus to get sick to teach you, me, and Epaphroditus, and the church at Philippi, and everybody else for all eternity about how he is and his character and his nature. And that he uses hard things to make us into the people that he wants us to be. That's what he does. And so Epaphroditus was anything but a failure. And when we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, what do these two have in common? And what was the, where did we end last week? We talked about how. These two men teach us that great things, value in the kingdom of God, true discipleship always and only takes place in the context of Christian community. By sitting at home by himself, reading the Bible, watching, uh, you know, Charles Stanley on TV in, the, in his living room, drinking his coffee, that's not how he, that's not how he became... Timothy, the protege of Paul. 
Epaphroditus didn't become the man sent to minister to the great apostle on his own. He did that in the context of the local church. You see, it's in the context of community that God refines us and grows us. And listen, nobody has ever been raised up to make a difference in the kingdom of God apart from Christian community. That is how God makes leaders. That's how he makes workers and soldiers and messengers and missionaries and pastors and Sunday school teachers and great fathers and mothers and on and on and on it goes. Don't miss that. Do not miss that. So if we sort of sum up everything that we have learned about God through Paul's teaching on Timothy and Epaphroditus, it would be a reminder of what we should already know, which is Jesus spent his whole life engaging the people that most of us spend our whole lives trying to avoid. The people that seem weird, the people that are, they're outsiders. They're different. They don't know the lingo of the insiders. They don't dress like the insiders and talk like the insiders and act like the insiders because they're not yet. So the second thing that we're going to learn today is this. Jesus not only came to bring outsiders in, but he also came to call the insiders out. And the insiders is in quotations because they're not actually insiders. They think they're insiders, which is why they're in quotations. Jesus came to call outsiders in, but also to call insiders out. Let's look at Philippians 3 and see how God wants to show us this this morning. Finally, my brethren. Now, can I just point something out to you? The Apostle Paul says, finally... He's at the midway point of the book of Philippians. See, every biblical preacher, when they say finally, that means they're halfway done. You understand? I'm just trying to be biblical, okay? So I'm just trying to be like Paul. I'm just trying to imitate Paul, okay? So here he is at the halfway point of his letter. Finally, my brethren, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Look at what he says. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation or the mutilation of the flesh. All right, let's talk about this for a moment. So Paul then follows up this teaching about outsiders coming in and about how God likes to use the least likely people to do the things that he endeavors to do and he says, now finally I'm going to say some things to you that I've said before, but it's to your benefit for me to say this. And what are these things? They're the gospel. And Paul starts by just illustrating the fact that what we need to do as followers of Jesus is we need to be part of one of the byproducts of being in community is that we hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over, which is good for us, which is necessary for us, that if we don't do that, We'll be in trouble. We need to be reminded of the things that we might have already think that we know. And so then he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Those who seek to mutilate the flesh. Now, when Paul calls someone a dog, that is the most scandalous word in the first century that you could call someone. You see, people... In the first century, just like people today in third world countries, they don't have labradoodles. I oftentimes wonder when I'm watching television, I think, I wonder what the people uh, that I minister to in India that live in garbage dumps or the people that we minister to in Brazil, what would they think if they saw our television commercials about how hard we try to convince ourselves that our dogs are actually human and that they should eat what we eat. 
Now, that's a sermon for another day, and I'm sure I'll make enough enemies today so I don't need to go down that road any further. But here's the, here's the thing, okay? I want you to understand that a dog in first century culture was a wandering scavenger, disease-ridden, to be avoided at all costs. They were the scum of the earth. And Paul uses this term to talk about this group of people, these evil workers who seek to mutilate the flesh. Now, what is he talking about? Well, here's what I want you to see this morning, okay? Or at least one of the things is that when you read the Bible, what you will find is that the, the New Testament church has always, for the last 2,000 years, there's never been a time that the church has not existed in a pandemic. It's always been a pandemic in the church. Now, see, what we're experiencing right now is new to us. But it's not new in the church. The church was born in a pandemic, has always been in a pandemic, is in one right now. And this is what Paul's addressing. You see, 2,000 years before anybody heard of something called COVID-19, there was a highly contagious virus ravaging the church then, and it's still ravaging the church now. And it's called pharisitis, or its more heinous form, pharisipolis. It's legalism. And it's always been a threat, and it's always been sweeping through the church, and it's always been wreaking havoc and turning people against the gospel. And Paul is addressing these dogs, these evil workers, those who would seek to mutilate the flesh. Look, look at verse 3. Here's the context he's talking about. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. You see, you know what Pharisaitis does? Pharisaitis comes along and says, well, we believe in Jesus and we believe the Bible, but you got to do this and you got to behave this way and you got to, and on and on it goes. They add, see, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, because I've said it 10,000 times, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Nothing. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus. And when you start adding things to Jesus, you've left the gospel. You've morphed into some other thing. You've been attacked by a virus and now are part of the pandemic that's causing the problems that the church has always faced. And Paul's warning us now, just like he's warning the church at Philippi, there are those in the church that seek to harm the church and defraud the gospel of its power by trying to harness people to a yoke that God never intended for them to be harnessed to. And they were saying, you know, well, yeah, you can be a follower of Jesus, but you have to comply with the Jewish law. No, you don't. Jesus never said that. Let me help you with this issue of legalism, because I know that uh, we all hear this through our own lens, and oftentimes, depending on what your background is, it can get a little fuzzy. So let me, let me help you. Here's a definition of legalism that will serve you well. If you memorize this definition, it'll be something that you can use to test yourself with this virus. Legalism is the, pre is the preoccupation with form at the expense of substance. Now, here's how I would like for you to use this definition. Whenever you're talking to somebody and they begin to complain about the church, of course you'd be talking to somebody that goes to another church because no one that goes here complains about the church. But if you happen to be talking to somebody that goes to another church and they start complaining about the church, here's what you do. You listen to what they're saying and then you filter it through the grid of that definition. 
And you ask yourself this very simple question. Is what they're complaining about form or substance? So what I do when I hear people, I listen to what they say for a moment. If it's form that they're complaining about, I ignore them and I pray for them. If it's substance, then I listen to them and I consider what it is that they're saying. Because substance is important. Substance matters. But when you put form over substance, we should all wear a mask around you. Because you are becoming a Pharisee. That's what a Pharisee is. That's what a Pharisee does. That's what these dogs were doing in the church. Look at verse 4. He says, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal. I persecuted the church concerning righteousness, which is in the law. I was blameless. Paul then turns the tables and lays out all of his qualifications in the flesh that they would hold in high esteem. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, your rituals can't save you. Your traditions cannot save you. Your ethnicity cannot save you. Your heritage cannot save you. Your rule keeping cannot save you. You see, of course, if you're a follower of Jesus, then of course that the Bible calls us to live in a way that honors the teaching of the Lord Jesus. But religious rule-keeping as a way of earning God's favor will always lead to sadness and joylessness because it is a cheap counterfeit to a dynamic relationship with God. See, legalism is a killer. It's a deadly killer. And it has always, always tried to creep into every church in every context, in every time, always. And so when I talk to people about the Lord today, I hear things like, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. Huh? Why are you telling me that you grew up in the church? I mean, that may be part of your story, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You haven't earned God's favor because of something that you did or some way. I mean, this is the... This is the pandemic that's especially prevalent in the Bible Belt. Let me show you a couple verses from Mark chapter 3. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is uh, ministering. He's healing people. He's teaching the gospel. He's, he's surrounded by crowds of people. And so he's in a house teaching the gospel and here's what the Bible says in verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and were standing outside, and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now notice what Jesus does in response to his family seeking him. And he answered and said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now there is a multitude of things that this text teaches us. But in the context of this conversation, what I want you to see is this. 
Picture the scene. Jesus is in the house teaching the gospel, surrounded by a ragtag group of tax collectors, prostitutes, nobodies, rejects, and they're all listening to him teach the gospel. His family, meanwhile, comes up outside and seeks to have a face-to-face meeting with him, which if you read the whole context of that Mark chapter 3, you would know that they believe he's demon-possessed and they've got all these ideas about things. But the point is this. They're outside. They want to talk to Jesus who's inside. How does Jesus get word that his family is outside? Someone who is outside, probably one of his disciples, sees them, talks to them, and then goes through the crowd to Jesus and says, hey, your family is outside and wants to talk to you. Here's my question. Why didn't his family just come in? Why didn't they just come in? If the disciple could make it to where Jesus is, if they wanted to see him, why didn't they come in themselves? And the answer is, because they're outsiders. The whole point of this passage is illustrating the difference between an outsider and an insider. Could they have come in? Well, of course they could have, but they didn't. They didn't. They're on the outside. And if we think about this, we, we see, well, clearly this teaches us that you could grow up amid all the trappings of Christianity. It's not like they haven't known Jesus his whole entire life. They grew up in the same house as Jesus. And yet, they're an outsider. If you, if you were to evangelize, if you, if you were out doing evangelism and you rolled up on Jesus' family and you said, well, I'm just, you know, going door to door, just wanted to know if you know Jesus, they'd laugh in your face. Of course I know him. I'm related to him. I've known him his whole life. There's never been a day that he's on earth that I didn't know him. Yet they don't know him. They don't know him. You could grow up in a Christian home. You can attend church regularly. You could get baptized and still stand outside. You could be utterly convinced that you're an insider and be an outsider. Matthew chapter 7, verse 31. Sometimes those who are close to Jesus should stop and think and examine and ask themselves because they may be, in fact, on the outside even if they think they're in. Just like Mark chapter 3 teaches. So Jesus came to bring outsiders in. He came to call insiders out. And then, thirdly, Jesus came to give insiders a passion for outsiders. You see, now there's no quotations around insiders because these are the real insiders. If you're really inside, then Jesus came to give you a passion for outsiders. Now, how's Paul going to teach us this? Look at verse 7. Here's what Paul says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Huh. What is Paul telling us there? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that, you know, there used to be things that were very important to me. In fact, there used to be things that drove my life. There used to be things that I, I used 
to set all of my priorities. There used to be things that determined how I used my day, that how I used my time, how I used my resources. There were things that used to be very important to me. But having a relationship, a real relationship with Jesus, has made all of those things like rubbish. That's what he's saying. Now, consider the fact that we live in a world where it's absolutely commonplace for people to say, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, and their life still looks remarkably similar to the life they used to lead. That doesn't seem to align with what Paul's saying here, now does it? How is it that a person can move from death to life, from darkness to light? Their citizenship can be conveyed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. How is it that you can go from being dead in your trespasses and sins to alive in a relationship with the living God of the universe and there be no noticeable or very little change whatsoever? Hmm. You see, when it comes to resisting the dogs and the evildoers and those who would seek to mutilate the flesh, you see, there's always going to be voices prevalent around that are going to be trying to deceive you, that are going to be trying to persuade you against the gospel. But those aren't the voices you need to be most weary of. The voice you need to be most weary of is your voice. Because whoever it is that you talk to the most, it pales in comparison to how much you talk to yourself. And if there's a danger of being self-deceived, <laughs> is exactly what Paul's trying to warn us in this text about. That we can convince ourselves of all sorts of things. But are they biblical? Do they align with the Bible? You see, look back at verse 9. Look at what the Bible says. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. What law? Well, God's law, but what specifically? What areas of God's law? Well, whatever areas we think are more important. Whatever things. In this context, they seem to think circumcision is way up there on the list of importance. And everyone that has pharisitis has all these ideas about all the things that they think are very important to them. They're formed. Look at what he says. A righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes... Through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, in God's economy, faith is the currency. Faith is the currency. So now let's think this through. If faith is the currency in God's economy then how can it be that there are people everywhere who will not experience the power of God because they won't act in faith? And even in saying that, I have to go further because 
I'm not sure what you think faith is. So I'm going to say it again. You will never experience the power of God until you act in faith. What is faith? What does that mean? It means that you have to take risks to experience all that God lays out for us in the Scripture. You, you, there's no, listen, it's the players on the field that get the trophy, not the spectators and the fans or the, in the stands or the, the referees on the field. No, it's the players. It's the people who were involved in the, in the game, in the battle. Listen, some of us are trying to work out this life of faith by doing as much as we can with no risk. That's impossible. That's impossible. You cannot walk apart from sight and it not be risky. You see, when you walk with no sight, you, there's danger of bumping into things and, and danger of things that you don't, can't see you know, because you're walking without sight. All the things that your sight protects you from are now gone. You cannot act in faith apart from risk. It is absolutely impossible. Faith requires risk. Let me help you to see exactly what I'm driving at here. Let's use a very familiar passage of Scripture. In Matthew 14, the Bible tells the story of the disciples in a boat in a storm. You all know this story. And they're in the boat in a storm, and Jesus comes up walking on water. And Peter says, Lord, I want to come to you. And Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of the boat and walks from the boat to Jesus on the water. Now, for some reason that I have yet to discover, it just bewilders me. Stay with me here. For some reason, the modern church fixates every time you ever hear this passage mentioned, the church always talks about what happens after Peter walks on the water, which blows my mind. Because that is not the main point of the text. The main thrust of the text is the fact that A, Jesus walks on water. B, all the disciples saw Jesus walking on water and only one of them said, I want to do that. And Jesus said, well, come on. Which means who in the boat had the opportunity to walk on water? Everyone. But only one person said, hey, I want to do that. Can I walk on water? Only one person was willing to take the risk to get out of the boat and to walk on water. So let me ask you this. The day after that occurred, who do you think was most excited to talk about the events of the previous day? I'm sure everybody was blown away by what they'd seen. But clearly Peter would have been far more excited about how the events in the storm impacted him as opposed to everyone else. See, who took the bigger risk? Here's, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that God, listen, God, when Peter said, I want to get out of the boat, Lord, the Lord didn't say, now, Peter, 
Do you understand physics? Do you understand the way creation is made? Do you understand that you're not me, that you're not like me? Did he go into a long teaching about all the reasons why Peter can't walk on water? You know what God did? God said, come on. And this is what I'm convinced of. I am 100% convinced that the world is filled with people who have a, some knowledge of Jesus and some false security that they walk with him and that they know him. And they're going to one day come in full view of all the opportunities that they missed out. They missed out on because they were trying to play it safe. You see, Peter wasn't, Peter didn't read a bunch of books and study all the things about getting out of the boat. He didn't memorize a bunch of scriptures about getting out of the boat. He didn't get in a small group in a circle with all his closest friends and, and have a discussion with all of them about what it might hypothetically look like if one day somebody actually gets out of the boat. He didn't do any of that. You know what he did? He got out of the boat. That's what he did. That's the point of the story. That we serve a God that says, yes, come on. I'd be willing to bet this morning that if you've come in here and you feel a little dry, a little dead in your relationship with God, it's not because Jesus is lacking something. It's not because you're not reading the right part of the Bible or you just don't have a dynamic enough uh, Bible study going or small group thing going or you haven't read the latest, greatest thing. None of those things are the reason. The reason that you have a dead relationship with Jesus is because you're playing it safe. If you want to experience all that God has for you, you got to get out of the boat. When was the last time that you've taken a risk for your faith? I'm telling you, all the best things that God has for us, they require faith. Faith requires risk. Here's the scary thing. Is that as people play it safe, they actually think they're safe. And you know where the least safe place for someone who knows God to be is playing it safe? Because if you're, if you're trying to avoid risk, at best, you will grow dry and dead in your relationship with God. But at worst, you're going to be like so many who walk away thinking that you tried Christianity and it didn't work when in fact you never even scratched the surface of what a relationship with God really is. There's nothing safe in the kingdom of God about avoiding risk. I prayed for you this week because I knew there'd be a lot of hurdles to receiving the things that God wants to say. And I want you to know what happened. That as I prayed for you, I was deeply concerned. And I just prayed, God, will you break down the barriers so that the churchgoer, the insider, will hear with fresh ears what the gospel wants to say. And as I was doing that, I started seeing your faces. And I got very encouraged because I started seeing the faces of so many people in this fellowship whose life is so radically different 
from the, the way it used to be. I started seeing so many faces of so many people who were, I went from so discouraged to so encouraged as I thought about person after person and in pew after pew, row, section after section, first service, second service. I just started thinking about all of the, these remarkable, radical, transformed lives that I get to see your face week in and week out and, and how you, you take risks for the gospel. About how you do things for the sake of the gospel that, that your own extended family tell you you shouldn't do. Oh, you shouldn't do that. Oh, I know somebody that they did that and here's what happened to them. Like, you, oh, yeah, that, that's, you shouldn't do that. Forget what Jesus says. Come on. No, thank God. Thank God for those of you that act in faith. And may God in His grace awaken the dry bones of those of you that don't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, how long you've been there. It not, listen, if you're not acting in faith today, you're not walking in obedience to Jesus. But there's... Good news. Look at how this ends. Look at verse 10. Paul ends, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's saying, yeah, remember, it's all in the context of being an insider that Jesus came to give a passion for outsiders, right? And so this whole issue of risk and getting out of the boat is because how could it be that there's insiders that don't have a passion for outsiders? Because outsiders are risky. Outsiders are scary. Outsiders aren't like you. They don't act like you and talk like you, and you got to be careful. It's a dangerous world out there. Apparently, God doesn't know how dangerous the world is. Well, you know, the Bible is just relevant to, to 2,000 years ago. It's not really relevant to today. God doesn't understand. The risk involved with pursuing the outsider. So I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to be a good churchgoer, rule follower, poster child for Pharisaitis. Paul says, why would you be afraid to risk? When you're stepping out of the boat to the one that has the power of resurrection. If he has the power to raise death to life, then what are you afraid of? What's got you so... What, what, what earthly trinket are you so afraid somebody's going to steal if they get into your castle? What are you afraid of? Notice what he says, being conformed to his death. Well, what does Paul mean, being conformed to his death? Paul's saying, how did Jesus die? Jesus died to save sinners. He made it abundantly clear. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came not for the well, but for the sick. He came... For the outsider, for the reject, for the one who is, is, doesn't even think they could ever be an insider. That's who he came for. He died for sinners. And Paul says, I want to be like him. Paul says, for the same purpose 
I want to live my life and willingly die, risk to reach sinners with the gospel. See, one last thing, and I really mean last. Let me remind you of what Jesus said in John 15. He said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. So he makes a declaration of what is, and then he says, if, if, it's conditional, if you remain in me and I in you, then, if then, if this, this is who I am, this is a bona fide guaranteed fact that will never change, and if you do this, then you will bear much fruit. And here's my question. And then I'm done. What does Jesus mean by fruit? Is that just whatever you want to put in the blank there? Or if you read John chapter 15, is it crystal clear that the fruit Jesus is referring to is advancing the kingdom on earth? That's the fruit. So if you abide in Him, then you will devote yourself. You will have a passion to see outsiders come in. Is it risky? Of course it's risky. It takes faith. The whole Christian life is risky. See, when you no longer have a desire to reach the outsider, you might be one. So let's stand and bow our heads and respond to what God said to us. Not to who you're sitting by, not to who you're thinking of, but to you and to me. And let's ask ourselves, Am I an insider or am I an outsider? And if I am an insider, then what does that mean? How do I know that I'm an insider? What, are the, what does the Bible say are the marks of someone who's truly inside?